0: Jeremiah 44, you're going to need a Bible. We're going to walk through much of this passage this morning, just sort of verse by verse. There is an outline in your bulletin where you can track along with the message. One of the things I've told you week in and week out is that this is not a chronological book. In the actual chronology of Jeremiah's life, this is the end of it. I know there are more chapters to come, but if you just look ahead in the book of Jeremiah, we're in 44. Chapter 45 is a small chapter addressed to Baruch, Jeremiah's friend. And then there's a section from about 46 to 51 that deals with the nations, and we're going to summarize all of that next week. And then the final chapter of the book, chapter 52, deals with... Uh, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon. And we've talked about that, and I've told you that story occurs twice in the book of Jeremiah. And so I'm laying that out for you so that you understand in the timeline of Jeremiah's life, this is the very end of that story. And so we'll try to get our bearings, and then we'll make sense of this passage. During the reigns of Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, conquered Judah, and he took many of the Hebrew people into exile. This is the fall of Jerusalem, the final cataclysmic destruction of the temple and the wall and much of the city. And many of the people were hauled off into exile. When this final move to exile took place, Nebuchadnezzar installed a man named Gedaliah on the quote-unquote throne. He wasn't to be the king, but he was to be the governor of this province, And we made reference last week to the fact that Gedaliah was assassinated by a man named Ishmael. And on the heels of that assassination, after the assassination of Gedaliah, most of the Jews who were living in Jerusalem ran away to Egypt. We talked about this last week. They ran away because they were scared. They were absolutely terrified. They knew that Gedaliah worked for Nebuchadnezzar. And they knew that his assassination would upset Nebuchadnezzar. And the common wisdom, the conventional wisdom on the street is, Nebuchadnezzar is going to march right back here to Jerusalem. He's going to take the rest of us into exile in Babylon. And they did not want to go to exile in Babylon, but they didn't think it was a legitimate option to stay in Jerusalem. So they put their heads together and said, let's go to Egypt. Egypt was west. Babylon was east. Egypt was the closest nation they could go to that wasn't at that time controlled by Babylon. And Egypt, because of the Nile, had lots and lots of food. And so they thought our bellies will be full, we'll be safe from Nebuchadnezzar, and we won't experience another exile. Jeremiah, for his part, was essentially kidnapped and forcibly taken to Egypt Against his will. Again, we made reference to this last week. If you look at chapter 43, verse 7 and verse 8, it seems that Jeremiah settled in this city named Tapanese. There are other cities mentioned in chapter 44 Migdal, Taphanes, Memphis, and the land of Pathros. Now, I don't want to presume on any of you, but I'm guessing that you did not spend the last week brushing up on your Egyptian geography. So I'm just going to show you. Basic layout of Egypt. The star is not quite where Jerusalem is. Jerusalem would be a little bit further north, but that's where my map cut off. So Jerusalem is right up there by the Dead Sea. And you can see these three places, these three broad regions where the exiles went. Some of them ended up up north. In the Nile Delta area, that's where Migdal and Tapanes would have been. Then you see Memphis was sort of a capital city. It was an important city in central Egypt. And then there's this place called Lower Egypt. I'm reading out of the ESV, it's called the Land of Pathros, which literally means land of the south. So we're talking about southern part of Egypt. This is some 400 miles separating these areas. This is a large area where these Jewish exiles ended up in Egypt. There are archeological digs, by the way, in all of these places that show there are Jewish communities who lived in these places during this time. Archeologists dig it up and they find evidence that Jews lived in all of these places. Now, last week I showed you this painting. We've looked at this painting several times in this series. This is Michelangelo's painting of Jeremiah on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And I told you last week, I imagine that when Jeremiah was lifted up and taken to Egypt against his will, when he finally got there and he plopped down after this long, difficult journey, he he looks something like this. This is sort of the end of his life, how we remember the weeping prophet. He's hunched over as if he's almost been defeated. The man who over and over and over again said, thus says the Lord, has his hand on his mouth, as if Everything that could have been said has already been said. And his eyes aren't looking up. His shoulders aren't square. He's just staring at the floor, dejected and defeated. I imagine that's how he looked or at least how he felt when he got to Egypt. But then you come to chapter 44, verse 1, and it says that there was a word that came to Jeremiah. Another word from the Lord. And so, if that's what he looked like when he got to Egypt, the word of the Lord came one more time. And he had to get up and he had to look God's people in the face one last time and deliver one more message. This is Jeremiah's very, very last sermon. It is stereotypical of what Jeremiah has said in the entirety of the book. It's dark, it's sort of depressing. It's not all that uplifting, it's foreboding, it's ominous, it's all of those things. And the big idea for us this morning is the big idea of Jeremiah's sermon. I think you could summarize it like this. Idolatry always has disastrous consequences. Idolatry always has disastrous consequences. Don't just think worshiping statues, but think worshiping or giving supreme value to anyone or anything other than the Lord God idolatry always has disastrous consequences. These people are running for their life to Egypt as part of the consequence of their idolatry. Their friends and family have been taken to exile in Babylon as part of the consequences for their idolatry. Lord has poured out judgment on these people. In Jerusalem. It's one of the consequences of their idolatry. And now the Lord is promising through Jeremiah that this group of Judeans who ran away to Egypt, they ignored God's warning through Jeremiah. God told them, stay put in the land. And they said to Jeremiah, You're a liar and we will not listen to you. And they ran away to Egypt. God says, Look, you're all going to die in Egypt. Those exiles who got taken to Babylon, they're going to come home in about 70 years, but almost all of these people would die in Egypt, and they would never, ever, ever, ever again return to the promised land. It's one more consequence of idolatry. As you read this sermon of Jeremiah, it brings up in my mind what is an interesting question, and the question is, how do we learn From the past? How do we learn from history? And connected to that question is maybe a more basic question is it even possible for us to learn from the past? I've told you recently, one of the podcasts I have been listening to lately is called The Rest is History. There's a guy named Dominic Sandbrook and he talks to a guy named Tom Holland. They're historians. They talk about all sorts of random historical events. This is not a quote from the podcast. This is just me paraphrasing one of the things they regularly talk about as historians. They talk about the idea that remembering the past often hurts us in the present. Now, that's not what you've probably been taught. That's not what I've been taught. That's sort of counterintuitive to the wisdom of somebody that you've probably never heard of, but you've heard this famous saying of his. His name is George Santayana. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's sort of an interesting debate. On the one hand, you've got Santayana and a lot of people who agree with him saying we have to learn from the past. And on the other hand, you've got a couple of historians saying, look, sometimes we just need to forget the past and move on. Now, I tend to agree with George. I think we need to know history, and we need to know what's in our past, and I think our current cultural experiment of cancel culture, erase the history, tear down this statue, destroy this monument, I don't think that's healthy for a society. I think we need to remember our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it. But I also understand what these two historians are saying, Sandbrook and Holland, when they say sometimes you just have to move on from the past because there's nothing you can do about it, and you just keep bringing up old wounds and grudges and problems and issues. So it's an interesting debate. Let me add one more voice to the debate, a German voice, George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. I imagine a German pronouncing that with lots of grunting and... Noise. I'm not going to try that. Hegel says this What experience in history teaches is this that people in governments never have learned anything from history or acted on principles deduced from it. He's not saying that you should or you shouldn't. He's getting down to a more basic level saying, Is it even possible? In his take when he looks at history is, We have never learned from the past. Because we do, in fact, keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Now, I understand, on the face of it, this is a self-defeating sentence. He literally says, history teaches us that we can't learn from history. So if you break it down, you say, that doesn't even make sense on the face of it. But you understand what he's saying. He's looking back saying, we don't seem to be very good at learning from the past. And I think recent events of the last week or two in Afghanistan would lend some credence to Hegel's view that we are not very good at learning from the past and changing what we do in the present. Now, all of those issues about looking to the past and learning from the past and changing the way we live in the present, all of those issues are front and center in the very last sermon that Jeremiah preached. It's an important sermon. It's the last time the weeping prophet stood up and looked at the people of God. He wasn't in Jerusalem He wasn't in his hometown. He wasn't in his home region with his friends and his family. He was with a bunch of exiles who had kidnapped him and taken him to Egypt. And he stands up one more time to deliver the word of the Lord to God's people. And I just want to walk through this sermon so you see the major pieces of it. So let's talk about Jeremiah's last sermon. It starts with history. Specifically, it starts with Judah's history, the history of Judah. Verse 1. He says he is speaking to all the Judeans who lived in Egypt. Now, if you jump ahead over to verse 15, it says that this great assembly was all the people who lived in Pethros down south. And if you remember, I said Jeremiah was in Tappanese up in the Nile Delta region. So probably what happened is the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. He started preaching where he was at, and then he just started making his way south through Egypt, stopping at all the... Jewish communities along the way, and the last one, the last stop, was down south in Petros. But this has been addressed to all the Judeans who ran away to Egypt. Look at verse 2. It says, the Lord was the one who brought disaster on Jerusalem and Judea. The Lord did that. Not Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord brought that destruction. Verse 3 says, it was because of the evil and the idolatry of God's people. God destroyed this nation, this city, because his people were evil and idolatrous. Verse 4, God did send them prophets. He sent servants. And the servants had a message. The message was not, you're a bunch of idiots. The message was, verse 4, oh. It tells you something about the heart of God, that that was part of the message. It wasn't just knock it off. There was a groan, there was a sigh, there was emotion in it, there was pain in it. Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. Verse 5, they refused to listen. Verse 6, wrath and anger were poured out on Jerusalem. That's the history of the people. That led to them being terrified in the city of Jerusalem and deciding to run away to Egypt, which brings us to the exiles present. When you look at verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all of it is past tense. All those verbs are past tense. It's looking back. This is what's happening in the past. But when you look at 7, 8, 9, 10, it's all in the present tense. This is what brought you to this point in Egypt, all of this sin, all of this idolatry. That's why you're in exile. Verse 7, 8, 9, 10, this is what you're doing now. There hasn't been any change. Verse 7, why do you do this? You're doing it now. Why are you doing it? Verse 8 says the same thing. Why do you provoke me to anger? You're doing it right now. Verse 9, have you forgotten the evil? He lists all kinds of evil. The evil of your fathers, evil of the kings, evil of their wives, your own evil, and the evil of your wives. That pretty much covers everybody. There's a lot of evil in the nation, and you seem to have forgotten that evil is evil. Verse 10, you've not humbled yourself, and you are not following my laws and my statutes. That's the present and the past. Next comes God's judgment. And there's an important word in verse 11. It's the word therefore. And if you're reading the sermon, you understand that this therefore is looking back to the past. This is what was in your past is looking back to the previous section. This is what you're doing in the present. Because of this in your past and because of what you're doing now in the present, look at verse 11, God will set his face against this people. That's a terrifying thought when the Almighty God sets his face against you. Verse 12 and 13, God will consume these people. He will punish these people. Verse 14, none of the remnant will will survive this little jaunt down to Egypt. And then comes the most shocking part of the whole sermon. I suppose, depending on your perspective, it's not at all shocking. But it is shocking to read it, the exiles' response. They listen patiently. They've all gathered together, all the people down in the land of Petros. Verse 15, so Jeremiah has a big audience. Verse 16, they look at Jeremiah and they say, we... Will not listen to you. It's nothing new. Nobody has ever listened to Jeremiah. He's preached from when he was a teenager to when he is a defeated, hunched over, hand on his mouth, eyes on the floor, old man, and no one has listened. Why would it be any different at the end? We will not listen to you. Look what they say in verse 17 We will worship the Queen of Heaven. Queen of Heaven. The Queen of Heaven, most scholars say, is sort of a mash-up deity. It's sort of an amalgamation of lots of different fertility goddesses that were worshipped in this area. So you could take the Canaanite goddess Asherah. You read in the Old Testament about the people worshipping Asherah and setting up Asherah poles. Asherah was sort of part of this cult. You can read about the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. That was certainly an influence with the Babylonians coming and conquering God's people in Judah and Jerusalem. You can read about the Egyptian goddess, Isis, all fertility goddesses, and there's pretty good evidence that people in the ancient world didn't really view all these gods and goddesses as separate entities, but rather the same entity revealing itself in different ways to different people. Sort of the same deity behind all of these fertility goddesses. So that's why they were so quick to adopt each other's gods and goddesses. It was just sort of a name change. You call her Isis. We call her Ishtar. They call her Asherah. It's all the same deity. And they say, we are going to worship the queen of heaven. We talked about this back earlier in the book of Jeremiah. I believe it was chapter 7. Jeremiah says, Entire families in Jerusalem were involved in the worship of the Queen of Heaven. The kids would go out and gather the sticks to make the fire. And the husbands would bring home this paycheck and work in the fields and bring the the grain home. And the wives would take the grain and they would bake cakes and they would stamp it with the image of the queen of heaven. And they would offer these cakes and they would offer these drink offerings. Not to the Lord God, but to this fertility goddess, to the queen of heaven. Look what they say in verse 18. They essentially say, Jeremiah... We're going to keep worshiping the queen of heaven, and we have come to the conclusion that the reason everything is so terrible is that we stopped worshiping the queen of heaven. They're probably talking about Josiah. It was not that long before this story when King Josiah and Hilkiah and Shaph the secretary got together and found a copy of the law of God in the temple and read it and they tore their clothes and they repented and they led a great revival in Judah and Josiah enacted numerous religious reforms and he tore down the high places and he got rid of all the, the fertility cults. And the people say, you know... Everything was great during the time of Manasseh, and economically it was. But after Josiah got rid of the queen of heaven, everything went downhill. They blame the whole thing essentially on Josiah and his revival. Look what they say in verse 19. The women admit that they have a role in it, but they say, look, our husbands are in on it. I mean... Women in this fertility cult were the ones offering the cakes, but the women say, look, the guys are in on it. We're all in it together, and we're not going to quit worshiping the queen of heaven. That brings you to the the last section. We did not read verse 20 to 30, but it's another promise of God's judgment. Essentially, Jeremiah looks at the people. He's preached. They've responded. He looks back at them one last time, and he says, if that's what you're going to do, do it. Go do it. You've made your vows. Keep them, and here's what you can expect: famine, pestilence, sword, and you will not be going back to the promised land. Look at verse 26. This is a a shocking part of this final judgment. God says, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord lives. God says, I'm gonna take my name out of your mouths. This is Romans 1. God says, I am giving you over. I am completely giving you over to the queen of heaven. You will no more talk about me. You will no more hear from me and you will no more pray to me or worship me. I am removing my name from your mouths. If you send in the ancestry DNA kit, these people were Jewish. They were Hebrews. They had the right DNA. But what God is saying is, you are disowned. I am not your God and you are not my people. And that's how the sermon ends. It's horrific. The whole book is horrific. This final sermon is absolutely horrific. And the question for you and me this morning is, as we look back on the book of Jeremiah and we read, we listen to, we walk through his final sermon, is there anything that we can learn from this? We just ought to start by saying, God, please help us learn from this. God, please do not let us make the same mistakes that these people made. I don't expect any of you to go home and bake a cake and stamp it for the queen of heaven and offer it on uh, your fireplace or your outside grill or your whatever. That's not going to happen. But it is entirely possible that we do exactly what these people did in abandoning the one true God to chase after all the little G-gods that people follow every day. Can we learn from this sermon? Let me give you a few thoughts. How do we apply this sermon to our lives? Number one, we need to remember that everyone worships. Everyone worships someone or something. We talked about this Tuesday night at our first institute class uh, for this term. We're talking about worldview, and we talked about the very first worldview question that every worldview has to answer is, what is ultimately real? What is the supreme, ultimate reality? In every worldview, whether that worldview says we believe in God or that worldview says we don't believe in God, every worldview has an answer to that question. What is the most final, ultimate, real thing in the universe? And that thing that you answer in that first worldview question is the thing that you're going to worship. These people who ran away to Egypt, they refused to say the Lord God, the God of Israel, the God of hosts is the supreme reality in the universe. They refused to say that. Instead, they looked at Jeremiah and they said, answer the queen of heaven. We're going to hitch our cart to her. We're going to worship her and we will not turn back. They were quick to worship all the gods and goddesses Of the nations, they refused to worship the Lord. Today, you have a choice. You have lots of choices, in fact. You can worship the one true God, or you can worship a false God. You can worship the the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures and has told you, This is who I am and this is what I'm like. Or you can worship a God of your own creation. Probably not for most of you an idol made with hands, but an idol made with your mind an idea of God that you just sort of dreamt up, that you're comfortable with. You can worship the big G God or you can choose one of the many, many little G gods floating around out there. There's lots of them. And they're happy for you to worship all of them alongside each other. They're not particular and exclusive like the big G God. You could pick uh, family. You could pick... Politics, you could pick money, you could pick power, you could pick reputation, you could pick your children, you could pick retirement, you could pick leisure, fun, you could pick sports, you could pick any number of things. And you could say, this is the most real thing to me, this is the thing that I will give my allegiance to, and you can worship it and you can serve it. Here's what you can't do, you can't not worship. Everyone worships. You may worship the one true God. You may worship some false God. You may worship yourself. You may worship pleasure, but you will worship. Something will control your life. Something will guide your life. Everyone worships. Jumping off of that, we'd say this secondly, idolatry is always at the root of disobedience. Idolatry, misplaced worship, is always at the root of disobedience. We've talked about this story for two weeks. Last week, we talked about these people coming to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, pray to the Lord. Tell us what to do. Whatever he says, we'll do it. Jeremiah says, great. He prays. He says, stay put. And the people say, you're a liar. We refuse to do it. We are going to Egypt. And they did that because they were scared. They were afraid. Fear can control you. Fear can make you do foolish things. But if you take that onion and you peel back one layer, you realize that there's something more basic and more elemental to their fear. There's something that is causing their fear, and it's misplaced worship. It's a stubborn refusal to put the Lord God in the place that only he belongs to be. And the result of that is flagrant disobedience. When you look out at the world today and you see people flagrantly disobeying the Lord and ignoring his commandments, you have to understand that at the root of that, there is a worship problem. It's not just bad morals. It's idolatrous worship. And what's true for the world is true for your pastor and it's true for you. When you look at your own life, your own heart, when you look at the mirror of the word of God and you see sin in your life, there is always a worship problem connected to that sin and that disobedience. Everyone worships. It's inescapable. And your worship is connected to either your obedience or your disobedience. Thirdly, understand that the world will often see God's people as the problem, often see us as the problem. These people listen to Jeremiah. They have stiff necks. They have hard hearts. They have foreheads of iron. They don't want to hear what he has to say. They've called him a liar, and they refuse to listen. And then they double down, and they say, Jeremiah, the real problem is not what you're saying. The real problem is we haven't worshiped the queen of heaven enough. The real problem is we need to go further, in this direction, which means further away from the Lord God. They have for decades thought that Jeremiah was a pariah on the nation. They've called him a traitor. They've tried to kill him. They've thrown him in a cistern. They've uh, had PR campaigns to slander his reputation. They have thought for decades that Jeremiah is the problem. This happens today. Increasingly in our culture, it happens today. Today where the world looks around at all the division, at all the problems, at all the mess, and the world says, you know what the problem is? It's those narrow-minded, bigoted Christians. They're the problem. It's those people who think they know the only way that a person can be made right with God and that only they worship the true God. Those people are the problem. Jeremiah experienced that kind of thing. If you follow the Lord Jesus in 2021, you will experience that kind of thing. The world looks at people like you and me and says, let me tell you what the problem is. It's you Christians in your restrictive morality presuming to tell everyone what they can and cannot do. You're the problem. It's like you're reading out of the book of Jeremiah in 2021 in the United States of America. Is people who refuse to see the obvious idolatry and wickedness and the issues right in front of their face, and instead they just double down on what they've been doing and they say, No, 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 we know the solution. You are actually part of the problem. Jeremiah lived his entire life with people who thought he was the problem. If you have to do it in the United States for who knows how many years, you won't be the first Christian. Who's had to do that? I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy. But it's as old as the book of Jeremiah. Fourthly, I think we need to remember that the message is more important than the messenger. That's an important historical lesson. Because I read this story about Jeremiah's final sermon and how it all ended, and I'm left wondering, well, tell me the real end of the story. Tell me what happened with the rest of Jeremiah's life. You know, what I'd like to think is that he retired somewhere nice and he had a place on the Nile River. There was a Jewish community on an island called Elephantine Island. You can look it up. It's a beautiful island right in the middle of the Nile, and we know that there was a Jewish community there. And I'd just like to imagine that Jeremiah got a nice villa overlooking the Nile, and he just said, I'm done with you. I'm going into retirement, and I'm just going to relax probably not what happened there's two leading traditions for what happened to Jeremiah one says he ran away from Egypt and he ran away to Babylon and joined the other exiles in Babylon more likely there's more evidence for the tradition that says as he preached this final sermon his own people stoned him to death they finally said that's enough we've listened to you for 70 years That's enough. And they killed him. Truth is, we don't know what happened to him. The book doesn't say. No other book of the Bible tells us. And the honest truth, I don't really like this answer because I'm a curious person, but here's the honest answer. It doesn't matter what happened to Jeremiah. This is really not a story about Jeremiah. It's not a story where he's the hero. It's a story about Jeremiah speaking for the Lord God who is the hero. And the word that Jeremiah spoke to the people faithfully, even though they ignored it, he was faithful in speaking the word of the Lord. The message matters more than the messenger. Jeremiah is like grass here today, gone tomorrow. Jeremiah's life is a mist, it's a vapor. It's like the psalmist says oh, our lives are like a sigh. That's how long they last. What endures is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. Churches need to learn this lesson. I don't matter. Your Sunday school teacher doesn't matter. The messenger is completely irrelevant. It's not important. What matters is the message. It's not do you have a favorite messenger? It's do you listen to the message? One last thought. Jesus came to inaugurate the new covenant. I think we have to include this consistently in Jeremiah because it's such a sad book. You read all these sad stories with sad endings, and especially this one, Jeremiah's last sermon. I just think it's important to remember the one right spot in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, and it's important to remember that Jeremiah is not the last book in the Bible. There's other stuff that comes after Jeremiah. This isn't the end of the story. And in Jeremiah 31, the weeping prophet promised a new covenant. And when you get to the pages of the New Testament, you learn that Jesus, the suffering servant, established the new covenant. Jesus, just days before he died, did something very Jeremiah-like, very weeping prophet-like. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Jesus, just days before he dies on the cross, is standing outside the city of Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. You wonder if he's thinking about Jeremiah. When he says those words. How often would I have gathered your children together. As a hen gathers her brood under wings. And you were not willing. Makes you think if he was thinking about the people in Egypt. Saying to Jeremiah. We will not listen to you. See your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you you will not see me again. Until you say blessed is he. Who comes in the name of the Lord. Literally hours after he prayed this prayer outside the city of Jerusalem, he rode into the city on a donkey and the crowd said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just hours later, really, in the grand scheme of things, Jesus sat down to celebrate the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. And he looked at his disciples in the middle of that Passover celebration and with Jeremiah 31 on his mind and on his heart, he said, I am inaugurating, I am establishing, I am founding the new covenant. It's a new work that God's going to do in the lives of his people. And literally hours later in the grand scheme of things, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. It's a shocking thing to think about this judgment that was poured out on Jerusalem. But it wasn't poured out this time on the people. It was poured out on the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, our sin bearer, our redeemer, who laid down his life to establish the new covenant. I don't know about you, but when I read through Jeremiah, I constantly have to go back to those truths. In my personal Bible reading, I've been in the book of Jeremiah while we're preaching through Jeremiah. And every time I read it, I think, this is the most depressing book I have ever read in my life. Jeremiah 31, there will be a new covenant. The gospel of Matthew is not the end of the story. The question for you and I this morning is, will we learn from the past? And will we allow it to change us in the present? Do not be like these people, Jeremiah 44, verse 16, who say, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. Listen to the word of the Lord. Turn from your sin, trust in his son, Jesus Christ, and enter into a new covenant relationship with God where he writes his word, he writes his law on your heart. Acknowledge him as the king of kings and worship him. Let's pray together.